Welcome to another episode of The Solar Podcast. Today, Dave is speaking with Sean Kidney, CEO of the Climate Bonds Initiative. Join us as Sean discusses the explosive growth of the green bonds market, how capital markets can finance climate solutions, and the urgent need to mobilize investment to avoid climate catastrophe. Let's get started on The Solar Podcast. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone back to the Solar Podcast. I'm Dave Anderson. Thrilled to have with me today, Sean Kidney. So Sean has, for the last 10 years, actually longer than that, been leading as the CEO the Climate Bonds Initiative. We're going to want to talk about that. The podcast, we've talked a lot with different people that have been impact investors. Um, I'm really keenly interested in learning more about the, the Climate Bonds Initiative. Um, Sean is very well published. He can be found all over the internet. He's spoken all across the world. He's a frequent speaker on climate finance, on green bonds, and other major conferences globally. Uh, he also has a professorship at the University of London. Um, he's a, an advisor and a board member to many different organizations and an absolute all-around expert. So one of the things we're certainly going to talk about today is the IPCC and, and the guidance that we've received from the UN and, or from the, from the IPCC, and he's been an absolute expert on that. I've had the, uh, the, the, the wonderful opportunity of, of hearing many different uh, speeches and conversations that he's had on the internet and thrilled to have him on the solar podcast. Sean, welcome to the, to the show. Jesus, after that kind of intro, thanks for having me on. <laughs> you bet. Well, I'm sure I'm missing some spots. Uh, obviously I know the last 10 years of your career fairly well, but maybe you can give us a little bit of background about who you are. Uh, maybe just personally outside of just the professional side. Uh, look, uh, I, I'm a guy that spent most of my life being a social entrepreneur in Australia and I had a midlife crisis. At the age of 50, a few things happened to me just before I turned 50. One of my businesses went under. That was pretty bleak. I thought, oh God, so mm, have I lost my touch? Uh, my father died. That yeah. was that was hard. I had a distant relationship. But in fact, one of the things I did is when I went to, he was in a small country town, I took a few books when I told he was unwell because I didn't know how long it would last. One of those books was the Proceedings of the Exeter University Conference on Catastrophic Climate Change chaired by the Prime Minister of the UK, Tony Blair, at the time. And I read this thing. And, you know, you read science papers after science papers after science papers, like a thick book. And I kept thinking, uh, is this really what they're saying? I had to read it again. God, I think this is what they're saying. And I came out of that, you know, you don't get the time in most lives to, to really read on this. And there was nothing else to do with a small town when my dad was asleep or for unwell. So, um, I came out kind of thinking, oh God, we have a bit of a problem, like a really big problem, because they're really talking about the extinction of human species as a reasonable risk. That's what it came out. So that was a, a next crisis I had. Oh God, so what do I do? 50, I have four daughters. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a future. And then I came back to, to um, home, went for a hike in the country, came back and I had a stroke and I found myself in hospital and I thought... You know, and one of the things you, when you have a life-threatening uh, experience is it makes you think, right? Because <laughs> I, oh God, so what is that I want to do with my life again? And because uh, let's face it, I could die at any minute. You know, this is probably it, the stick of minutes. So I better, I better make the most of it. And that led me on a journey. And my journey made me get to the stage where I had to give up everything I was doing. And I had to focus my life on doing what I could do in my little set, skill set to try and address this 
what I consider freight trend coming down the tracks of us. Real, real fast. And that led me to this. Now, I had a, so uh, what do you do? Into the question. My professional expertise has been a social change strategist, working health campaigns, anti-racism, stuff like that. So I used those skills. I spent a couple of years researching. I'd done a lot of work for pension funds, and I had this view, which has continued to be affirmed, about the importance of our differential ownership of capital in society. We've managed to create in the last 70-odd years these large pools of long-term capital which sit beside the previous owners or the legacy owners of capital, the vertically rated banks, the rich people who tend to play the market in short-term horizons. But these pension funds, by fiduciary duty, by DNA, they have to look 30 and 40 years out. And the crisis of capitalism that we have is short-termism triumphing over long-termism. Climate change is a long-term problem which keeps getting whacked on the head by, hey, I might make a huge profit on an oil find in the next three years. Oh, I'll take that opportunity. And that tragedy, if you like, of the difference between long-term and short-term horizons was really what struck me as the biggest problem and gave me the sense there was an opportunity if we could mobilize institutional investors who, by the way, it turns out, without them realizing it, own the planet. They own everything. There's $130 trillion of these guys floating around, but they're just not using that ownership in a way that properly meets their long-term objectives because they're using old-fashioned tools, short-term tools of the market. And that got me going. And I thought, well, this is a way of bringing a different power block to market. Because, you know, our societies are really run by the elephants of industries jostling against each other, pushing each other around and so on. And, you know, I had a friend who was um, the treasurer the, uh, of, a, of a state. And he said to me, you know, Sean, for every guy that wanders in talking about climate change, I've got 20 guys coming in talking about coal plants and gas plants and fossil fuels and so on. And they're really good. They know what, they've got a really great story for me. And, you know, it's hard. What am I going to do? And it made me realize we've got to bring other people into the room. Uh, so this particular sector is in bonds, 60 to 90% invested in bonds. If we don't talk bonds, we're talking out of our hats. That led me on this journey, which involved publishing a strategy, a discussion paper, and then eventually, when no one else would pick it up, launching an organization in 2009, saying, bugger it, I've got to do it again, another serial entrepreneur job. And you know what? We've been pretty successful. Well, been a bit of a surprise. We've grown a market, which is about $2 billion in 2010 to $4 trillion now, globally, and still growing, you know up and down as the global markets changes. And we've managed to get, well, if you look at our partners page on our website, we've got most of the world's major brands involved in this thinking, whoa, and we've managed to do something, which was the essence of what we try to do. To say to, to get investors in particular and others thinking that addressing climate change is not a cost. This was the unfortunate aspect of the economists looking at this 15 years ago. They define this as a cost to the world economy. No one likes to do stuff if there's a net cost. We turn it into an opportunity. And nowadays, green bonds, green finance, investment in the transition are seen by investors globally as the biggest opportunity they face. I mean, yes, there's crisis, and that makes them looking at it, and the challenge of climate change, but they also think, oh, 
the world is going to do something about this. I've got to figure out how I can make money in this transition. And that's what you set out to do yeah. and it's working. So, hey, there's my story. Yeah. Sean, as, as, as a host to a podcast, I've had the opportunity to, to interview some really worldly influential people. And it's an all too common story that, uh, that, you know, it's certainly not universal, but it's a common story that so many of the people that have come on that have been really impactful and influential in this, leading this charge, have had some sort of a, a personal or individual experience that sort of like led them down the path. And, and uh, you're, you're certainly uh, no exception to that. Um, I do think it would be great for us to back up just a little bit and talk about what specifically are green bonds. So obviously, we're going to talk about it in the context of the, the climate bond initiative of which you lead. But, but what more generally are these green bonds? And in terms of, you know, yes, there is a financial return to them. This is something that people can invest in. But why are they influential? Why are they impactful? And what are the things that really are critical in terms of deciding or making up what truly is a green bond? Because the truth of the matter is, is that 96% of the S&P 500 here in the United States say that they have some sort of an ESG component to the company. Uh, but I would argue that not 96% of the 500 uh, uh, company or not 96% of the companies in the S&P 500 are in fact uh, would be qualified to to, to to receive these sort of green bond investments. And I'd be curious what your take is on that. So maybe kind of a loaded question, but uh, maybe help us understand what is a green bond? Uh, who, would, who, would, who would qualify for one? And how do we categorize whether or not it truly is an impact investment and who would be eligible for these sorts of green bonds, uh, these, de de these delegations? Look, a green bond is a very, very simple idea, which is why it works, which is all it is is a, a, a debt, a bit of debt, where you're promising to use the proceeds for something green. You know, you decide to buy a car. You haven't got the money. You've got to borrow it from your uncle. You go to your uncle and you say, can you give me the money? Yeah, okay, I trust you. You'll pay it back. He does a credit check on you. And, <laughs> and then you say, um, thanks, that's great. Then he, but he says, you know what? I'm worried about the environment. What about you buy electric car? And you say, and you say, yeah, I've been looking at those Teslas. All right, I'll go get a, I'll go get a Tesla. And that's a green. You've got a green bond to pay Tesla. And then every year you say, look, I'm going to come back at Thanksgiving and I take you for a drive and that to show you how cool it is. And that's the reporting and transparency mm -hmm. out of the green bond. It's as simple as that. Simple as that. They're lending you the money and you're promising, cross your heart, not to die to invest it in something green, which does, as you say, raise the question of, well, what is green? That is absolutely right. But it is a very simple idea. The roots of green bonds lie in war bonds, which was simply a loan where the government promised to spend the money on winning the war. Same principle. Or highway bonds in the 1950s in the US. Ditto, raising the money to spend on building the US highway network. Green is that latest incarnation of that idea. Who could issue? Well, because it's such a simple idea, anyone can issue. If you can issue debt, you can issue green debt, subject to you investing the money or using the proceeds for proper green investments. Well, what are they? Well, when we started, I can remember a senior banker in New York telling me, ah, oh, sure, this is going to be a huge market. We're about... Um, Five billion outstanding, then going to be a hundred billion dollars. The climate aspect is going to be a small part. I said, 
It's going to be about 10 billion worth. You know, it's going to be parks and water. I said, mate, you understand, you misunderstand. The The world we're going into, climate is everything. Climate has got to be the filter on which we look at how we run our societies and how we build our economies, because it's going to be the dominant environmental issue for everything for and the dominant impact issue. There's a resilience agenda. And by the way, it's going to be trillions, not a hundred billion. And now mm-hmm. we're at four trillion. And we've managed to make this very much a climate-centered market. Now we've done that by providing investors with guidance. This is a market driven by investors. Why? Well, think about these investors that we're focusing on. I'm not worried about mum and pop or 401k funds. I'm worried about the big institutional investors, TIAA Crefts or New York Commons or whatever, who have a mandate to make sure you get your pension in 30 years' time or maybe 40 years' time, Dave, when you retire. And that's a legal mm-hmm. mandate. So they need to look at long-term risks and their actuaries, I can tell you, when they read the science, they have the same reaction that I had when I read that paper beside my father's deathbed, which was, we are, we are, we're stuffed unless something changes. They don't know what to do and they're freaked because all of their, life, their asset side is run on modern portfolio management theory, which says there's a five-year horizon. Remember that problem I mentioned of the short-term horizons of the tools that we're used to using? This is a challenge for them. So they've got a long-term risk. They're terrified and they're saying, what can I do? Well, we give them a product. The green bond does two things at once. It walks and talks and smells like a short-term valid product, a five-year horizon bond. But it has a bonus feature, which will also address as a long-term risk, the risk of climate change that the actuaries have been screaming at them about for the last few years. And that's why it works, because it does both things at any one time. And that's why we have unquestionable demand. And I happily will tell anyone that if I could get $10 trillion of bonds tomorrow, we would place them. There'd be no problem on the investment side. They would go. But it has to meet existing risk yield requirements with that as a bonus feature, which is I'm not going to get big pricing differences. I'm not going to get them paying 10% less for a green bond. If it's similar price range, a little bit tighter, which is what we see in the market, but has this bonus feature to go. What you're going to get as an issuer is greater access. You're going to get a lot more investors who want to talk to you if you do it in the green format, which is what we see over subscription levels are generally high. And there is a bit of price difference. What do we call green? What we've managed to do is to continue to hammer home the need to look at climate from the investor perspective. And we keep rolling out guidance and they're lapping it up because investors don't have a detailed knowledge. They know about solar. Everybody goes, okay, solar, that's great, we get that. But what about agriculture? What about industrial? What about transport? What about uh, urban development property? How do we know whether it's, let's call it, future fit? So we've worked on these things called taxonomies of greed, just guidance, if you like. We've done the climate bonds taxonomy, which is a global tool. Plus, it's become regulatory now. We've managed to give us the Chinese government and the European Commission and the and a number of other governments around the world, like Singapore, to bring in regulatory guidance, all broadly common, which is science-based showing this is what qualifies as a climate investment. Go, this is what you issue green bonds against. And that's how we get the consistency globally for the global investors. So 
that's the story. But the, the, the key part of that is channeling the science. You know, the last 30 years, we've been ignoring the scientists. What we're trying to say through this whole process is time to listen to the scientists and make sure we then translate that to something the finance that can use, which is a different game, a different world, different language, if you like. It's that link that we really need. And it keeps getting informed by new science and so on. And that's how we've grown this standardization, rule sets, simplicity of rule sets. Bingo. It's growing like sugarcane. Well, we're going to want to jump into the science, but a quick question for you. So what specifically, what role does Climate Bonds Initiative play in terms of the proliferation of these green bonds? What's, uh, what, 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 what role specifically is Climate Bonds Initiative playing in this, in this $4 trillion market? We don't do any structuring or formal advice. That's up to the banks and the other advisors. We're not trying to compete. We're a not-for-profit. Our, our goal is to engage investors to drive demand, which is what we've got now. Our goal is to promote the idea of a new marketing theme, which just connects investors with issuers, which is the green theme. It's part of that is getting rule sets going, getting guidance, and getting everyone to agree on that guidance. That's a big part of our work. The, the, the area we're doing most work on that area at the moment is around taxonomies and guidance. So we're working with um, governments all around the world about what are rule sets relevant to that country that will also be internationally compatible or compliant. Um, but we also work on policy. So, you know, we've now got a multi-trillion dollar market. Corporations and governments are saying, hey, I need some of this to address my climate change objectives. How can I get hold of it? And we've got a whole toolkit on our website called 101 Policy Ideas to Mobilize Sustainable Capital, which is specifically designed for ministries of finance, clever things they can do, low cost, fiscally efficient to get capital moving, to invest in solar, for example. What are some of the examples of some really simple ones and some maybe more like uh, hot takes, ones that you think people <laughs> hadn't really thought of that maybe are, are uh, uh, maybe a little bit more avant-garde or things that you think are maybe more creative that, that, that could be really impactful? Look, um, you know, let's take a central bank work. We've been working with central banks around the world. What can they do? They could bring in risk rating differential for the capital ratio requirements of banks so that if a bank holds a green bond, it gets a higher leverage ratio. So the Hungarian Central Bank and the Chinese Central Bank have done this at the moment. So I'm, all Central Banks could theoretically do it. That's sort of a gentle tilt on the playing field, a gentle tilt towards green. Amazing how powerful that is. Um, we can issue, we can do uh, preferential asset purchasing. The European Central Bank, in its cute quantitative easing program, had a bias towards green. It built up a bigger green portfolio than others. Simple idea. You could actually mandate if you wanted to, as in some countries is being considered, that they need the insurance funds and pitch funds have to have a percentage of green bonds and so on. All well, there's different takes. You could simply improve the risk profile preferentially of green through things like blended finance. So that could be development banks getting a mandate to provide guarantors or partial guarantees for green bonds. Hey, that's happening. The World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, and so and multiple other banks are doing this already now. Just in the last couple of years, they started stepping up to the plate. Um, you could ask that every investment in different sectors 
be screened through a climate filter. Well, the European Investment Bank has got a mandate now that 50% of all its investment, it's the world's largest international investment bank, um, is climate. And the other 50% has to be climate resilient. That is, it has to be designed in such a way as that as climate impacts start hitting us, they will not be knocked over. This is, and, and it can't, they can't build anything that's against the climate goals. These are the, ver- the changes that come, because when that happens, that means they're getting cheaper capital for projects that the finance, the private sector can't finance on its own. The, finance, the private sector can come in behind them and knowing that the development banks are taking the risk piece. We can do a lot of that sort of stuff. We can bring in simple rule sets and energy policy in the solar industry. The thing that drove the growth was the German government, thanks to a Green Party, bringing in a feed-in tariff for 2001, which is essentially no cost to the Treasury, a program of ensuring massive demand for renewable energy. That picked up by the Chinese in 2006. Every year since then, China has invested more in solar and wind than any other country on the planet, including this last year. That has driven, driven volume production, which has driven down the cost. There's so much that states can do. So much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I, I love all of those policy ideas, actually, ones that I hadn't even thought of in terms of like, uh, you know, providing different leverage mechanics for these sorts of investments at the, at the um, federal bank level. Uh, I'd love to get, and this is one that I'm particularly interested in, uh, is in terms of the taxonomy. Give me an example of some of these categories and how you're sort of categorizing these different green bonds and, and why that matters. Well, what we're trying to do is to map out what are priority investments to address our climate challenges. You know, there are some big challenges. We've got to get emissions down 55% by 2030, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. What does that mean? Well, it means some stuff actually doesn't count. So you're screening stuff out and you're identifying something. Gas, for example, is not a transition fuel. The International Energy Agency has done modeling on energy system transition under 1.5 scenario. And they've said very clearly there can be no new fossil fuel of any kind to meet the 1.5 target. Okay, take that on. Therefore, that's excluded. What could we do stuff with existing fossil fuel? Potentially. If we are reducing emissions in assets we're sweating without increasing the life, yeah, there's some complications. We look at those sort of things. We look at industry. We've published criteria for the steel industry, what it looks like in an industry that's changing quite quickly, very quickly, moving towards green steel. What do the investments qualify? Well, I can tell you that electric arc furnaces qualify. Why? Because they're recycling steel and reducing the need. We don't need coke and coal to do that. Electric arc furnaces, incredibly important. In the US, we could actually meet most of our steel needs by dramatically increasing recycling instead of leaving it in junkyards floating around. In places where we have to have new steel, like India, we need to use hydrogen, direct production iron generation. And companies like Reliance and Adani in India are doing that right now. Hey, that's green and that qualifies. No fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera. So in every sector, in energy storage, in electricity grids, in, in buildings and cities, which have got to become way more efficient between now and 2050, you look at what qualifies now. In many cases, what are the moving goalposts to get to where we need to get to by 2050? And that gives you a rule set. Agriculture, transport, 
um, shipping, aviation. I can tell you, kerosene and planes doesn't qualify. But if you are moving towards sustainable aviation fuels, we need that. That's the way we can shift the aviation industry quickly. I will really tell people we could shift the bulk of the modern fleet to sustainable aviation fuels in a 10-year period with a really major investment in the right kind of sustainable aviation fuels because every plane built in the last few years can take 100% sustainable aviation fuels. Who knew? Well, that's why we have rules and guidance out there. And that's saying to investors, by the way, two things. If you're concerned about making sure your investments are in a future fit in line of where the world's going, here's a universe, a sandbox plane which covers the bulk of the economy. But also, we all know now the world is changing. I don't meet a major investor in the world who doesn't believe the future will be green. It's just a question of how and when and how they pick winners. This is a clue to the winners because if you're investing in these sectors, it doesn't remove risk. I mean, you can still get management that messes it up, right? But yeah, on balance, this is lower risk because this is stuff the world is going to need, come what may, and governments are starting to preference it in different sorts of ways. And that drives the sense that I mentioned earlier, the sense of opportunity, which is really what we need. But it needs the bigger opportunity. I mean, you know, to take solar, for example, I want solar to be positioned in a large basket of green investments and liquidity for pension funds is everything. <clears throat> solar by itself is not big enough. You start making a big green universe, oh, it's large and liquid. Everyone says, okay, I can play now. It's a big market. And that's the benefit of the green theme. Yeah. Where, where do you think the biggest growth opportunities are in terms of uh, the transition of clean and green energy? You know, over the last 20 years, thanks again to those German Greens and the, to the Chinese government, we've managed to drastically reduce the cost of solar. While, while investment volumes have increased and overtaken fossil fuel volumes, the actual deployment volume has grown way, way more because the cost of per kilowatt hour of solar now is so cheap, it's unbelievable. And from what experts tell me in the uh, solar research that it's going to keep dropping 20% for Adam for the next five, five or eight years. This is, this is cheap energy, folks. You know what drives economies? Cheap energy. Cheap per energy makes those economies that use and get access to it prosper. Everywhere in the world now, the only reason why people would build stuff other than solar in terms of cost rates is because they've got artificial prioritization of fossil fuels. Ruined systems in Indonesia biased towards coal because there's so much coal in the Indonesian system and so many vested interests and so on. We've got Republican counties all across the US now abandoning plants, gas plants, and building solar, not because of climate change. They couldn't care a rat's ass. It's just cheaper. That's a win. That's an extraordinary win. And it's still profitable. You know, we had this really exciting moment two years ago when September 2021, when on the New York Stock Exchange and the London Stock Exchange, the market capitalization of two renewable energy companies that used to be coal companies, both of them, Nextera in the US and Orsted in Europe, overtook the market capitalization of Exxon and BP. When I was a kid, Exxon was the biggest company in the world. 
you know. Me too. Yeah. And, and that's the excitement of this opportunity. You can make money on fossil fuels and it's going to go up and down. If you were investing last summer, you'd make a lot of money because of the crazy price gyrations. But if you want to ensure long-term sustainability of revenues, as our pension funds want to, there's no doubt we should be putting your money. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, I but, think- But, but uh, to your question, Dave, I just suddenly realized, energy storage, green investments, um, hydrogen, green hydrogen, which is booming now, thanks to the IRA, it's got a boost. Electrification of cities all over. You can, you know, everything from induction stove tops to electricity powered air conditioning systems, et cetera. Anything electric is going to be a boom industry in the next 10 years. Yeah. So as mentioned, I, I do want to get into the science a little bit and why this is important. And I've heard you talk a lot about this on many different places, but maybe if you wouldn't mind, and we've talked about it on this podcast before, but just give a general overview of the IPC, the IPCC's guidance that they had put out in terms of climate um, increasing by one and a half percent and the detrimental um, you know, effects of that and, and ultimately a point where it becomes irreversible. Um, the science has been very consistent for 30 years now in one key thing, very, very consistent, which is that the increase in emissions in the atmosphere, which are, by the way, currently at the highest level ever experienced by humanity while we've been alive on the planet, and I continue to, to increase, create huge risk, virtual certainty of drastic changes to the climate. Now we're going to go into those drastic changes if you like. But the but some things do change. You know, up till five years ago, most climate change scientists were saying if we could probably go to two degrees and we'll be okay. Warming that is. They're now saying we we're they were wrong. That the changes we're seeing in the Earth systems as we approach 1.5, which we're going to meet according to the World Meteorological Office by 2027, are so severe that they've had to revise downwards the tolerance levels, that above 1.5, we are dicing of death. Now, let me explain a few things that's going on here. In a complex system, what happens is that extra emissions are leading to warming up of the atmosphere for a variety of reasons. They act as, essentially, we're putting a, a, a sort of light mirror in the sky, which is reflecting heat, which is trapping heat. And that trapping of heat means air, lots of things warm up. The Gulf of Mexico now is at unheard of temperature levels in terms of the water temperature. In Yucatan, we had 31 degrees Celsius water temperatures recently. Well, what you're basically doing when you think about the size of the Gulf of Mexico is you're creating a huge battery storage. And that temperature can't stay there. It tends to be released. The way complex systems happen is when you heat them up, they have bursts, a bit like, you know, um, creating rain clouds. You create a lot of heat, the water convicts the atmosphere, and then the cloud bursts and dumps a, a monsoon. We're doing that with much greater intensity than ever before as a result of the emissions we put into the atmosphere. And that's leading to crazier weather. Think of this last year has been the hottest summer ever recorded 
by humanity. Um, they do think there was a year 142,000 years ago when it might have been this hot temporarily, thanks to, thanks to various, but it was a short-term thing. What we're going into is a long-term change here. What is certain is the level of emissions of the atmosphere have not been seen for, for a very, very long time. And we're only at the beginning of it. We're currently at 440, 422 ppm, parts per square million. The scientists are predicting on current trajectory that will be 1,000 ppm by the end of this century. And by the way, something funny happens at 1,000 ppm. You know, if you've ever been in a, in, a, in a lecture hall or in a tutorial room or classroom and the air conditioning's off and it's really hot and you're there all afternoon and it gets really muggy and you start falling asleep. One of the reasons you're starting to fall asleep if the windows are closed is because every, the carbon dioxide is staying in the room and you get up to 1,000 ppm. That kind of room where you feel really sleepy is what the whole world is going to look like at the end of the century, the moment. And there's a funny thing that happens when we have more carbon dioxide, that much carbon dioxide. Our, brain, our brains go slower. We become stupider. So we're actually creating a world where humanity, at a time when it's showing a lot of, let's call it signs of being stupid, is going to get stupider going forward. If we don't fix this fast, we're going to lose the window. This is what it boils down to. The, the, the difficulty with the kind of changes we're introducing is we've got this concept of feedback loops. You know, if we melt the ice shelf in the Antarctic, which is looking quite likely at the moment, uh, you know, it'll take a fair while to do. That actually raises sea level, helps raise further, increases warmth of the atmosphere. It sets up other things. We now know there's a direct relationship between the Arctic Ocean, which is likely to be ice-free in summer in the next three or four years, and therefore warming the Arctic Ocean, and the release of frozen methane that's underneath the Arctic in the continental ice shelf, which is rainforests from millions of years ago that have been there frozen ever since. If we release that methane, that's an extra shock, like putting adrenaline into the world's climate system. It gets hotter and hotter. And then that leads to the collapse of rainforest in the Amazon, which is one of the big fears of climate scientists, which get, makes the world get hotter and hotter. These feedback loops, there's about 13 major ones that science identified, all mean things go faster and faster and we lose any chance to stop global warming before we get to somewhere like six to nine degrees warming. Yeah, these are these these are the things where it's undoubted that uh, no no one denies or doubts that um, that humans are causing temperature change. No, no, that's um, a, that that's yeah. only people who don't read science who say that. Uh, you know, this you, you will not find a scientist in the world. Yeah, but the, one of the things that the and I think you're highlighting this really well or elucidating this point really well for our listeners is is that there are a handful of things at certain temperatures where these carbon dioxide and methane gases, these other greenhouse gases that are sequestered in things like the ice caps or in uh, the, the like, like as mentioned in, in Antarctica or in the Southern Poles, um, these things um, start to become released, exacerbating the problems to the point that any human intervention at that point would, would be uh, probably uh, not very impactful. We there's nothing that we could do as humans to sort of like slow or stop it at that point. Look, we've had climate change before. We had climate change in the 1600s. We had two degrees cooling. Why? Because in the 40, in, in, in the 1500s, humans 
invaded Latin America and released measles and smallpox. And something like 95% of all American Indians died from effectively germ warfare over the hundred years. Whole civilizations we now know disappeared in the Amazon and the forest. The forest regrowth, according to tree ring research at Stanford University, was so strong that it actually sapped fiber out of the atmosphere. Sort of hopeful in a way, right? If we could get this forest regrowth, we'd cool the planet. We set off some feedback loops. We now know from research on Mauna Loa that if we have big rainfall dumps on volcanoes, they have bigger explosions and that becomes a feedback loop. Whatever, the cooling of two degrees in the 1600s led to a century not of gently rising sea levels or gently lowering sea levels of more ice. Three things happened. War, famine, and plague. And that's what happened. So three horsemen at the apocalypse. And that's what we're seeing now. The pandemic we just had, we were lucky, incredibly lucky, because the mortality rate was only 1%. And it was 1% for old people like me. The SARS, if that had been the pandemic that had got away, had a 20% mortality rate. And it affected 30 to 40-year-olds, Dave. That's you. You're already 31, I think, aren't you? But anyway. <laughs> oh, so <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if that were true? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, the nature of pandemics uh, is, is scary for me going forward. But one thing I will tell you that is absolutely certain, we're now going to get regular pandemics coming through. We need to beef up the World Health Organization to be able to respond to this and learn for the last three years. We're going to get a war. You know, the war in Ukraine, hey, this is a petrostate dictator using money from fossil fuel sales to Europe to invade a neighbor. Sort of vaguely relevant, right? Let alone, we're going to get conflict over resources going forward if we don't manage it properly. And, and famine. Well, we had some famine appearing as a result of um, the war, but we're going to get different sorts of famine. We're going to collapse the crops. To take Mexico, for example, and its maize. We now expect to see quick and drastic changes in the growing range of maize. It's going to be harder to grow maize in Mexico. They're going to have to think about how to quickly shift to other crops, or else they're going to have crop failures before they learn it. We're going to get these outages. We're going to get famine unless we learn to share our food around the world, which is a bit of a new idea for us globally, right? Except in times of peace. This is what we're going to see this century. So we're in a race now to get emissions down as quickly as possible to stop runaway climate change, that's step one, or at least uh, severe impacts like heat and drought and, and rainfall. And so we're going to start getting worse and worse like we have this year. People are going to start dying on a frequent basis in larger and large numbers. But we're going to race to stop the catastrophic change because catastrophic means probably no civilization that we understand will survive. And we don't know how bad pandemics, war, and famine are going to be in that particular consequence. We've got to start preparing as well. We need to build in resilience to our systems, change our water systems, you know, learn from the near collapse of the Hoover Dam in the last couple of years and manage water sustainably. Stop growing almonds in the San Fernando Valley, for example, which is profligate wastage of water. These are things we've got to do everywhere because. There's a freight train coming down the track. And unless we're prepared, we're going to get hit. And that's the difficulty of what the IPCC is telling us. Yeah, so that's, that's the science. And obviously, it can, be, it can sound 
and feel, frankly, fairly bleak when we talk about climate catastrophe. But what are the things that give you hope? Obviously, we've talked about the resilience of the market and the market has been, in, the, in terms of green bonds, has been expanding rapidly. But what are some of the things that give you uh, hope um, and some of the things that you're excited about? Yeah, and uh, and David's really critical that we maintain, we remind ourselves of hope. Um, we are dicing with death. You know, I think we're walking along the cliff here. And we need to, we do need to keep reminding ourselves about the nature of the risk we face. This is not something that we can ignore. We can't afford to. We have to exercise. But let's look at what we've got going for us. The first thing is we kind of know what to do. We have the most incredible scientific predicted capability. We've never had, never had this before. We can now tell. If we're going to do something, what's going to affect this game? We, we've got to learn from that and use that. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. We have technological solutions. We know we've got all, all the clean energy solutions we need on the planet. You know, there's no R&D required. Sure, R&D will help reduce cost rollout. Actually, we could do it all tomorrow. If we were in a war situation with guns pointing at us, we would do it. We know that, right? We, we absolutely understand what we've got to change around agriculture. We're just not listening to the scientists yet. And that's what we've got to start doing in every aspect. So we have the solutions. We know it's going to be a huge capital investment pipeline cost to do this. Some $90 trillion has got to be invested between now and 2040 in the wide range of solutions that are in front of us. But this is where I get really hopeful and really excited because by some extraordinary Feet of luck. We have the capital. We have a world of washing capital. We have more capital on the planet than ever before in the history of humanity. And a lot of it is in places not earning a buck, like in German or Japanese bonds, which give you a negative interest rate, for God's sake. I mean, what the hell is that? So you've got this money sitting around, these big pools of capital waiting to be deployed. And these investors, for the reasons I mentioned before, are worried about climate change. They're looking for solutions. We can make this work. I mean, we've got to get the tap blowing quickly and get it moving. You know, uh, there's an old metaphor from petrol cars. When I was when I was a kid, when you ran out of petrol, you put a, a plastic tube into the next car and you sucked it out. You got the petrol flowing between <laughs> two cars, and and it worked. It worked. Well, we kind of need to have green. Get the the, the money flowing. And then it'll start working. And that gives me hope. And the green bonds market, which is in a way just an indicator of investment, it's proof of concept, if you like, shows that we can make this work. So my big problem now is not getting demand by investors. My big problem is getting people to focus on green solutions and get the financing uh, instruments out there, get them issued, and allow us to place this money, get the deals on the table. I spent a lot of time saying to bankers, I know this sounds way weird after 2008 when they were the villains, but now we need you bankers to be the heroes. You've got to get the money flowing. You've got the skill sets. I've got the money over here. I've got the solar plants and all the others over here. Bring them together, please. And please do it very, very fast. Yeah. What are the last and sort of like final takeaways you'd want our listeners to sort of like think about and 
and maybe the underscore the points that you've already made. I think you've made them all very eloquently and very effectively, frankly. But what are sort of the, like the last sort of like parting thoughts that you'd want our listeners to sort of like, um, you know, really take in and think about and ways that they can individually, because obviously you're talking about globally, you're talking about world markets, you're talking about governments. What are the things individuals can do uh, and the takeaways that individuals uh, should, should take away here? Well, changing my life, eating less meat, more vegetables, flying less, is all useful for being virtuous and moral, but that's not going to change the world. What changes the world is systems. So our job as individual citizens is to make sure that the systems that we rely on, that we create wealth from, are repurposed to be fit for the future. So we need to get the system operators focused on this change. That means the big corporations. That means governments around the world, state, municipal, federal, central banks, and the like. They're the ones who have to start thinking, you know, we can do this without this being an extraordinary pain. We can do this with something different. It's sort of a lesson from 1932. You know, when... when um, uh, the crash happened in 1928. The first reaction of Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover as president, was to contract, to stop spending. We learned the hard way, Keynesian economics, if you like, that when things go south, we actually need to double up our efforts and do more and spend more in a way that will create productivity to invest in the Tennessee Valley Scheme, for example. That helps start kickstart the economy. That's what we've got to do now. We need to invest in creating a green future as quickly as possible, knowing we've got the money, and create what is actually going to be the biggest investment boom the world has ever seen. If we make this change, if you start looking, when you start mapping out all the things we've got to do in the next 20 years, it's a huge agenda, all of which can be designed to be investable, all of which is going to help create jobs, create wealth around the world, create a society fit for our kids both in terms of earning capacity and not polluting, and where the temperature is not going to kill them. And when you think in those terms, you sort of think, this is the opportunity the millennia. Now, I know it's a problem. If we don't take this fork in the road, therein lies Mordor. Therein lies hell and Hades. But if we do take this turn, we create a different kind of world. We create a world where we, we can live in, that will also create wealth and create jobs because the capex is so vast. It is so vast. There's got to be invested opportunities everywhere. And we're seeing this already in the capex boom that's being triggered by the IRA in the US and how it's creating jobs across the southern, southern US in particular. Um, that's the first thing I'd say. This is an opportunity. This is not a horror if we do it right. But we do have to do it right very, very fast. And we have to do it together. This is a global threat and a global opportunity. It's not going to work just to do it in Mexico or Alaska. We have to hold hands on this one. That's the problem, which means we're going to have to figure out how the hell we collaborate between the US, Europe, India, China, South Africa, Indonesia. We can't afford 100 million people in one part of the world to start dying while we survive over here because those things spill over. Those kinds of crises will come to us 
encounter us through war, famine, or probably a pandemic created where 100 million people are dying and we won't be able to evade it. If we work together, we've got a chance. Well, Sean, it's absolutely inspirational to see people that, you know, especially someone like you that's uh, been a lifelong, not just entrepreneur, but advocate for these really critical and important, uh, um, well, not just climate change, but all of the things you've been an advocate for throughout your life. And and uh, at the Solar Podcast, one of the things that we really love is to meet entrepreneurs that are using real world market opportunities to make a change and, and, and make an impact. And and Sean, I think you uh, encapsulate that really well. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking with our listeners and helping to educate us on on things that uh, that are happening globally and worldwide to make an effect uh, to affect the change uh, that really is to the benefit of us certainly now, but more importantly to the benefit of of the future generations as well. Sean, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for the conversation, Dave. I really appreciate it.